0: Hi, I'm Cornell. I'm Glenn Roy. And I'm Kareem. And welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast. where
1: three hair whipping, heel strutting Jamaican queens talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture,
2: growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise.
0: We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottom Bottoms
2: up. up. OK, we've, we've nice. lost the timing, but that's <laughs> fine. Well, it's nice to see y'all again after so long. <laughs> Fish tea,
1: special edition, extra extra read all about it. Are you big, girl?
0: I was gonna work up like, the intro, but then I felt a yawn coming. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't. <laughs> I was gonna like, give you an extra special edition of fish tea, <laughs> but I couldn't. I couldn't.
2: So, what's been new? Well, so you know, close to the end
1: of luck. La- the last season I moved um, I know I have a housemate, who's a really close friend of mine And also co-worker So that's been fun Kind of coming into this new space Because I did say to myself That I would not Live with another person Because the person that I wanted to live with I already had lived with them Unless they were my partner of course So I lived with Xavier And then after he passed I said I don't need anybody else It's a new thing for me To go back in that state By the way I really will be know. By the way I did on the third anniversary Of Xavier's passing And for anybody who don't know yet Zeba is my best friend my bestie from high school all the way through university and law school and all of that passing 2017 so on the anniversary of his passing I got a tattoo of his initials and then I under it it says in truth I got talked through me. So I had it done in patois to get the patois the proper Jamaican language spelling. And then on top of that, I, I it's actually after I got the tattoo, I remembered why I chose those words. Because one of his favorite catchphrases was always truth for talk. And he would always use it right after he threw some massive shade at somebody. I said, no, but truth for talk. So it was my way of saying, you know, his legacy lives on through me. So yeah. So I did that. And I've been doing things, getting back to the groove of work as COVID restrictions lesson and I tried to navigate all that craziness but you know it's been it's it's been quite eventful but uneventful without my fish tea what have you guys been doing
2: I mean for the record your tattoo looks great I saw a photo on Instagram was it Instagram I think it was Instagram but wait but quick question y'all are also working on Jamaica pride stuff now
1: so yeah so we're doing pride online this year which is I mean, people are still complaining about it. It's a boohoo moment, um, but we didn't want to, even though the COVID restrictions have been lifted a little and the government now says, basically right before the start of August 1, parties can happen. We do not want to try and book a physical space to do a physical event. And then on August 1, the government has um, ch- um, no doesn't extend that grace period or that probationary period. So we said it's best to just keep everything online as best as possible. So we're still doing a, a week full of activities it's just all online uh, The kind of kickoff the kickoff starting on August 1 and we're still having a breakfast party on August 6 and what we're encouraging people to do is that for the breakfast party you and your friends gather around get your little coolers in a little spaces tune into the breakfast party live and bubble up in a little space where it's safe and so,
2: so yeah Thank you. Um, I'll go next it's really quick the main event really is that I moved to a new apartment so I have have windows now which is a really huge thing for me I was in the basement before so the joke that I keep telling people is that anytime I'm leaving the apartment I keep having to double check that I turn the lights off because I'm not used to having like natural light coming so it's just like a bit of a, a weird like mental shift that I had to make and I mean we don't have time to get into this full story but the reason why I moved involved and I, I'll just give you I'll just give you words and then you can kind con- you can concoct whatever story you want to out of that so six cop cars domestic assault biker gang gossip next door girl by my window mm. yeah let's go with that yeah you can yeah so that a gay
1: version I get away me <laughs> that's a whole lot
2: that, that, that is that is <laughs> paramedics yeah i I forgot I forgot and victoria day holiday anyway but that's that's a story for an, an, another time well what have you been doing kareem
0: <laughs> I'm just,
2: just going to say that white people are not okay. That's what I'm going
0: to say. What have I been up to? I think for the most part, I it's been pretty uneventful because there's no nowhere that you can really go. Sure, we had a few family gatherings. But I think the highlight of all of this for me has been just kind of like the work that I've been doing on myself and the growth that I've been seeing both like personally, personally, professionally and spiritually. And just like watching relationships around me change and improve and it feels good so like prior to when we just started this whole quarantine thing i was like feeling very frazzled and everything now i'm in a much better space and much more optimistic about what's on the other side despite all that's going around so i mean that's it that's it for the most part i've been getting my my chakras aligned and getting my well, what is what do is spiritual people do i've been burning my sage and my incense and i've been tuning yeah yeah, (laughs) but yeah that's it's been good to me for the last few months i can't complain
2: good 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 okay so i just want to say i'm super excited about our guest today she's been booked and busy so i'm really grateful she found time (laughs) To, to join us for this episode so i think we met properly in a graduate seminar that we did and it is not, you know, I'm not, you know, guessing her out by saying that it is an honor to know her. So in any case, Sandy is founder of the Black Lives Matter movement in Canada, Black Lives Matter Toronto, co-founder of the Black Liberation Liberation Collective Canada, public intellectual communications expert, abolition activist, law student, writer, which includes being co-editor of Until We Are Free Reflections on Black Lives Matter in Canada. You can also find her work in New York Times, Toronto Star, McLean's, The Huffington Post, and BuzzFeed. Sandy is also one half of Sandy and Nora Talk Politics podcast, which everyone should Check out Sandy's also a top-notch Scrabble player. I see you, <laughs> and and most importantly, sis is a whole Jamaican. So Ow. all the things. So welcome Sandy to the podcast. Thank
3: you. <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> See, I Thanks remember Scrabble,
2: there You go. did remember,
3: that's the most important thing, actually. So <laughs> I'm glad that you said that. And it's like, I did two podcasts today. This is my second podcast recording today because I recorded my podcast earlier today. So that's always
1: oh, good. You never know, about the Scrabble thing. i one of them teething people who put X and you together and try to convince me to say that word. Are you that really Look, real...
3: let me tell you something. I know every single two-letter a uh, word that will pass in the Scrabble dictionary. You gotta know, you gotta study, okay? If you wanna be number one in Scrabble, you gotta study. So yes, I'm gonna put that X-U, I'm gonna put the Q-I, I'm gonna put all of it. <laughs> Cause I'm about, I'm playing to win. Oh, I'm, I'm playing so that if you don't know the word, you don't know the word. Okay, I'm playing to win. I don't know the word either. I just know yeah. what counts. <laughs> there you go.
1: Start your
3: <laughs> That's how we gotta live in this world. We black people, okay? Come on.
1: <laughs> I have a friend Karen who's just like that. that every time we play a scrap problem, coming in at the food. <laughs> you cannot use it in a second. I don't think you should, it should it should matter it should. It should. <laughs> That's I mean,
3: I say. Look, I walk with the Scrabble dictionary when I play, okay? And if it's in the Scrabble dictionary, it's good enough for me.
2: <laughs> there you go.
1: Oh gosh, uh, so you know, my little biases against Scrabble players aside, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to have you on the podcast as well as to be having this kind of conversation because it's something that we've been, you know, cooking up and talking about doing since like the height of things. So i mean I'm glad we're able to have this conversation now. Mm-hmm. And I guess the first question that pops out at me. Is a question I guess that I've heard asked on different in different spaces in the media and other podcasts, which is what was different about this moment? And I'm not going to reduce it to George Floyd because George, yeah, because it wasn't the only case that was happening around the time. We have to remember Breonna Taylor and all of that. And I'm wondering, what was it? Was it a quarantine that got us that kind of had us all on edge? Was it was or was it that those image the image of that video was like that straw that broke
3: the camel's back?
1: What? Was it that?
3: I think it's a combination of everything that you just said. But in addition to that, it's like, look, you know, we're all inside our homes. And as Black people, we know that we have been experiencing the brunt of the effects of of this pandemic. Okay. And then to to then see in video again, another situation happen where it's like, You know, everybody's inside, but still anti-Blackness isn't going to take a day off. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, that could still happen in the streets, even when you're supposed to be inside, when there's supposed to be less police out, all of this stuff happening, that's still going to happen. I think that that was very important to the situation, that context. But I also think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, just generally as people, we work too much. We work too much. In regular times, our ability to pay attention to what's going on politically, our ability to pay attention to what's going on on economically, socially, generally, is stunted because we're always working, we're always grinding, we're always trying to make sure that we can afford the next meal. But here we have a situation where so many people were inside their homes. The only news that is going on are two things, coronavirus and the police killed another Black person. I think that a lot of people would have generally supported the Movement for Black Lives all these years that it's been going on, but at a time when we have more time to to pay attention to what's happening and more time to truly think about it, more time to have conversations within our families and within whatever other type of groups that we're involved in. It really magnified our ability to really engage, like to really have civic engagement on another level. And I mean, the implication of that is we really got to think about, you know, how much we're working on a regular time and what that does to our ability to really shape our world. You know, New Zealand's coming out of this saying that they're reducing their work week to four days a week. Well, I mean, I think that other countries need to really take a look at that, how much we're working, because we are going to really be able to shift and Remold our world coming out of this. And it's only because we have a little bit more time. So I do think that that has something to do with it. And like you're right, you know, Burana Taylor happened around the same time in Toronto. There was Regis Korczynski Paquette happened around the same time. So what was it about this? I do think that there's something to be said for when you see something on video, it makes it real in a different way, you know? So I think all of that context all together really made this moment something I mean we've never seen this before around the world you know this is the largest global movement that has ever happened literally ever we've never seen anything like this before
2: yeah right. I mean it's so I mean there's two big things you're right it has evoked a response from people in a way that is profound and expansive because even like the moment of Ferguson was quite significant but we didn't see the kind of like worldwide kind of response to the events that have, and not only worldwide, but like sustained and like ongoing response and like challenges to to the state in in really I don't I don't know how else to say, but like unseen new ways that we haven't encountered before. I appreciate you mentioning the point about working too much, and this isn't meant to be a plug, but I know that you and Nora Nora have done an episode about you know our working schedules and working too much generally, but I. I actually forgot about that in terms of the the big picture because a lot of the headlines right now are, you know, do we, should we defund the police or not? But the bigger question or the bigger challenge is we're trying to restructure the very idea of society and the way we are with each other all like overall. And Mm. I remember... A few, maybe a month or so ago, at this point, I was walking by a park uh, near my house, and I was like, "I've never seen this many people at the park before." And I've been there <laughs> for like five years at that point, and I was like, "Wow, it's it's really sad that because people are working all the time, or like this, like don't they don't get they don't get the time that there That's are these right. so much people in the neighborhood that would just like love to mm-hmm. have the opportunity that live here that don't get yep. to enjoy this space, and only because of you know, for sake of a of a pandemic and you know layoffs and and, and such, people. It I don't know. It's it's a it's a really weird kind of yeah. Some yeah. So I mean, I I appreciate you reminding us that it's not just about you know the singular event or about you know uh, black people's interaction with the police. We're asking for something bigger than that. Mm-hmm.
1: So I want to kind of bring that conversation about working too much because I agree with it in in principle because. I always say, in our context, a woman, a working-class woman like my own mother, she doesn't have the time Mm -hmm. to be raising two young boys and and caring about all of the issues that affect the community. She doesn't have the time to follow everything and to care about everything. And if you think about all all the things that happen in Jamaica, whether it is corruption scandals, collusion scandals, the crime rate, you know, we even had a a situation that seemed to be very similar that had you know, similar, a, a similar set of circumstances, well, I wouldn't say similar set of circumstances, but it was a similar iteration of the ways in which the security forces treat dark-skinned black poor people in Jamaica um, with Susan Bogle. And and, and this, this is a, a woman living with a disability in a poor community and soldier going to the house and shots are fired and this woman is dead and they're chasing down somebody else. And, and you wonder, why, why has this, why has this, woman living with a disability, minding her own business, why is she shot? Why is she dead? And, And whether or not there's accountability for that. And that's not far from where my mother lives. But she can't be overly concerned because she works, she doesn't get paid as much as her own son or despite the number of years she's been working. And so I wonder, how do we have that conversation about working too much in the context of a global system of neoliberalism, which extracts labor from Countries like Jamaica, in that kind of a way, um, how do we have that even broader conversation when our the, our unemployment rate is lowered by the fact that these external investors are coming from and coming and extracting labor from us in the ways that they are doing now? And if we started, even if we were supposed to consider those that types of measures about lowering the work week, um, lessening the work um, the work week and stuff like that, what kind of sanctions will that lead? to when the external they investors decide, well, it's, we have that in our country. And the reason why we come to your country is because you don't have that. And so why should we deal with the pressures of that when we can just go back to our countries and then leaving those very people in back into a space of squalor? So, I, so that's what I'm also kind of working through. Like, What does that mean to have that conversation when, you, if we, when, we, when we try to have these conversations about workers' rights? Um, and conditions of work, it's the people from those very community, from those very um, countries that are not fought, are not recognizing, are not ensuring that our the workers in our country are taken care of.
3: Yeah, I think that's such a big question, and it's like you know the issue of work when it comes to the pandemic is is twofold, right? Like there's all these people who have experienced layoffs and precarity in their positions but also all the people who are labeled essential and must continue working. And whether that's essential in their own country or like beyond, right? Because let's be clear, the way that uh, anti-Blackness manifests, this is a global phenomenon, right? Like, let me, you know, talk about my own parents. My father, he, my parents are working class. My father uh, works at the airport putting food on the planes. He was laid off, okay? He was laid off from the very beginning of the pandemic and has been at home. My my mother, she works in the linen and laundry department at a hospital. She's essential. And so she has to keep going to the hospital, right? It's like the way... It is so crucial for our movements when we're seeking to change society for it to be on a global level because we have to be talking about how this thing affects us. Like we are... Capital is tied together globally, and they use that to exploit people who can't be as tied together globally. Like, obviously, I'm tied to Jamaica because I'm Jamaican, but can I just walk over to Jamaica and start working tomorrow? No, I cannot. There are rules against that. But can some corporation start just go into Jamaica and start using the labor of people yes they can they can even bring the labor back to Canada be like y'all don't have the same kind of rights that we do here come work on these plantation fields basically like the um, temporary foreign workers who come up here and work and pick our food don't have the same sort of rights that we do force them to continue working throughout this pandemic give them not enough food not enough type not enough PPE not the type of facilities that they need like all of these issues that we are facing are global issues. And so they have to be talked about in a global way. Uh, It is so crucial for us uh, to think about these things globally because the space that Black people live in regardless of what country they're in, tends to be the same. Like, we're at the bottom of the economic spectrum, the darker you are, right? And, you know, don't have access to the same types of justice and rights as everybody else. And so I'm not just talking about uh, a four-day work. Like, I mean, even the idea of a five-day work week, it's like, my parents never had a five-day work week. My dad, growing up, worked two jobs. I just talked about one of them, but he worked two jobs growing up. He also worked in the kitchen of a hospital. Um, like I almost never saw him because he was working so so often, right? Like the idea of a five-day work week doesn't even exist uh, for Black people all over the place right now, right? So the idea when when I'm talking about a four-day work week, I'm talking about that for everyone and even for everyone who doesn't have the luxury of a five-day work week right now. Right?
2: Okay, I I don't mean to be interrupting myself so much in the conversation, but just to add to what you just. Said. You spoke
3: one time, Cornell.
2: <laughs> oh <my God>, <laughs> no, I know, I know, but like <laughs> Kareem. You spoke the
3: one time.
2: <laughs> but I mean, Kareem hasn't had a chance to jump in yet. But just to add really quickly to what you just said, there's also a question about even with the whole idea of like working five years or whatever, who gets to stay home versus who has to like show up to these different spaces would be one That's thing. Right. And even in the point that you were making about the agricultural workers, most of whom, as we know, well, seasonal agricultural workers who come to countries like Canada, as we know, are most often come from the Caribbean. And right now there was, the the story right now is that there seems to be a concentration of like workers um, contracting COVID. And so there's a point about vulnerability there, but to to, to Sandy's point about movement even, there was an article, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there was a point made months ago when this first started, how, how in a different kind of context, people from the quote-unquote you know third world or global south are policed in a particular kind of way when and now within with the the pandemic it is people who have access to say capital and like big passports or whatever or strong passports who who are in in some ways actually responsible for the the spread in a really interesting way so this whole idea of you know people from the uk or the us who don't who don't care about the safety of jamaicans or people living in the, the caribbean generally necessarily are like okay well I'm just trying to get me a, a, a vacation, even when things were shutting down and different industries were doing their process, they were like, oh, I can go to the Dominican Republic for like a hundred dollars mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm mm-hmm. about to be out here. That, yeah, I mean, that's also a conversation about capital and lack of a consideration about the lives of the people who live in these different communities as well. So I just thought I would offer that before Karim gets in there.
0: <laughs> First of all, I'm going to tell us something a time. <laughs> But um, no, so I kinda of wanted us I, I want us to and thank you so so for what you you've been sharing, the insights that you've been sharing so far. I kinda of wanted us to kind of just walk it back a little bit, right? Because I think and I could call myself out, right? I'm I consider myself somewhat new to the conversation right as it relates to racial injustices and so on social justice social equity all of that and for me I think what was important for me is just to understand and I think I was also one of those from the from the school of thought where it didn't really impact me directly so it didn't it just wasn't happening like I wasn't seeing the impact like people would say oh like I was like oh but my interactions with white people are amazing like I don't really get that and it took me a while to kind of understand when I walked into an interview and they say to you, "Oh, you speak really well for a Jamaican." Like that, that the implications behind that. So I would love if you could just, because it, it'll be a whole other episode or a few episodes to really go through all of them. But just to kind of for to provide context for our listeners, just to pro, what are some of the injustices or the systems that we talk about, right? That provide unfavorable outcomes for Black people, what do they look like so that people know why is it that we're in this fight? Why is it that this is such a crucial moment for us?
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many different systems that we could talk about. I mean, one clearly is the system of, uh, you know, the legal system, the criminal system, and how that seems perfectly designed to target Black people, right? I mean, we decide like, you know, when we talk about this is a systemic injustice, or this is a system that is affecting us, we're trying to acknowledge that there is a group of people, elites, who make decisions about what is a crime, and what is not a crime, and what you're going to go, what makes someone go to jail, and what makes somebody not go to jail, and so on. And it negatively affects Black people. And so a, a good example of that, is, you know, let's take a look at cannabis laws all over the world from time, right? People, black people have been going to jail for having a little bit of weed for a really long time. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One spliff and you're gone, right? For how long? And lately, lately, the white folks are like, oh, there's money to be made. There is money to be made here and so have decided to decriminalize it. Have they let all the black folks out of jail yet? No, they have not. Have they wiped out all of those laws that saw us being targeted, arrested, had our neighborhoods being surveilled by police officers? No, they have not. But they've decided to decriminalize it, to make it legal so that they can make money off of it. And that's just just the beginning of how we could talk about the criminal justice system. I mean, look at the opioid crisis too the opioid crisis where you you have a lot of it tends to be white folks who are you know using oxycontin and all of these other types of drugs and did they criminalize it like they did with marijuana or like they did with what during the crack epidemic no they didn't they decided to take care of it in a different way through a public health lens they decided we're not going to criminalize this why why did they only criminalize it when it's happening to our communities Well, because this is the way the system is set up uh, to uh, reward white folks for the things that they do and to like take care of them and to pathologize and criminalize black people. Like when when it's something that we do, it is bad. It must be stopped. It must be surveilled. Uh, We must jail them and take them out of society. So there's one. Another one is the economic system. I mean, our very position on this side of the world, you know, is like the economic system and how the economic system works. And whether that's through wealthy states continuing to use poorer states um, as where they, where they get their food, where they get their raw materials, where they get their labor, um, and how they extract money to bring it to the wealthier whiter states or if it's how we're structured in a single society within one particular state to have uh, black and indigenous people tend to be the most economically disenfranchised the most living in the most precarity uh, making the least money the least valued uh, types of of employment are reserved for black and indigenous people and at the top of the system always are the white folks right like these those are just two examples of systems that really negatively affect us i mean we could talk about so many others the 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 heteropatriarchy and how we we reward people who uh have a, a particular gender expression who are uh sexualized in a particular way and we leave out of uh the the most elite Uh, parts of our society, people who do not conform uh, to the very rigid structures of gender uh, that this whole system has set up for us, and very rigid structures of how we express our love um, in the way that this system has set up for us.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I mean, mean, just to add a couple of examples to what Sandy was saying, if we think about the very specific and numerous ways that Black people are affected by the pandemic even, we can ask questions about how is it that, or we can ask questions about like why and how those come to affect black people specifically in the way that they do, right? So I'm thinking about, so I mean, to on this point about the criminal justice system, one of the earlier uh, stories that came out a few months ago was about COVID cases in, in prisons, for example. And we can ask questions about, you know, how do, how and why do Black people get to the point where we're we're even within the, the the carceral framework, we're being disproportionately affected um, in Toronto, and I imagine in other cities as well. Um, there's a conversation about housing in terms of like densely populated um, apartment buildings, and so we can ask questions about like what are, what creates the conditions for like communities of working class black folks to be in those circumstances, again making them vulnerable to the spread of, of COVID. We can even think about even within university institutions where out of you know the, the framing is fiscal responsibility, they are cutting Black studies, ethnic studies um, program again, affecting largely um, black folk. We can think about how and why largely women of color, black women are in entry-level frontline positions in healthcare that, again, are making that. And I mean, and, and we haven't even accounted for the fact that not only are largely women of color and black women in these positions, but then they are also the primary caretakers in their domestic spaces, right? So, yeah, thinking about the very some of those like kind of specific examples and working our way um, backwards might be might be one way to, to think about some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, I have a question to kind of tie up kind of broader discussion about systems to the moment of now it has or do you think sandy that the 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 greater access to, to this kind of knowledge and this kind of discourse with the advent of social media um for example um has that does that contribute to how much more invested we're able to be now and 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 as a spill off why there's much more support for these kinds of movements now is it a bit, um do we have more access to this kind of knowledge of the system, the systemic problems, and that's why we're ready, or a bit more ready, I guess, to challenge things in this kind of way?
3: I might answer that by saying that I think that maybe it's not necessarily more access to the knowledge, but we have more access to each other in a different way. You know, and in a like in a real time sort of way. So that means that people who have particular knowledge can share it more quickly and with more people. I mean, even look at this podcast, right? Like you have a group of people who can come together and create their own content and put out critical ideas about whether it's culture or politics or what have you, and reach so many more people. Whereas, and I'm not saying that that wasn't happening before social media, like people were, you know, making their own zines or newspapers or whatever, but there was always uh, like an upper limit to how many people you could reach. And now those upper limits seem to have been smashed in a way. You know, there's still power dynamics that play themselves out on social media, don't get me wrong, but they are easier to overcome. And so when something happens, I mean, I'm thinking this week or last weekend, there were some arrests in Toronto after a protest about uh, some of these colonial statues that we have in the city. And, you know, the police put out, as they always do, a press statement that said, oh, you know, these people have been arrested. We were just trying to keep them safe um, when we were at the protest and, you know, things got rowdy and we arrested them. And then people were able to say right away, actually, that's not what happened. Everything was good until you guys showed up and made it unsafe. And then they're like, okay, well, these people are, have been detained and have access to their lawyers. And it's like, actually, no, they don't. (laughs) No, they don't have access to their lawyers. Uh, The lawyers have been trying to reach them for the last five hours and you guys haven't let them make the phone calls Could you could you let them make the phone calls then they put out a press release saying oh the protesters have been released everything's good and it was like "Mm, no they haven't you lying hoes (laughs) like (laughs) what are you talking about we are all right here and we have the pictures we can show the world that you are lying and you can't operate in the way that you have always operated to try to make us look nuts when we say these people are disgusting liars. And it was, I think, some something like six hours after they made the press release that these people had been released, <laughs> that they released them. And they had to, they were had to be on their back foot embarrassed saying, oh, it was a miscommunication. If it was a miscommunication, then why is the press release still on your website for people to see? Because you had an agenda where you were going to lie. Like you always lie about every situation. Uh, when you're interacting with this. But what social media does in a world like today is it allows us to reach so many people so quickly. And we can do that in the context of an action. And we can also do that in the context of, here we have on this podcast, a bunch of people, a bunch of nerds who have read too much about, too much. <laughs> and maybe we, we've learned some really good ideas that we can then translate for other people and give that knowledge elsewhere. So I'm not necessarily sure if the knowledge itself is more accessible as it's like the people are more accessible. And then that means that we can, can um, push that knowledge out uh, to more people in ways that we haven't necessarily been able to do before.
2: Fair point, fair point. So I, I want us to maybe transition to a conversation about uh, defunding the police, a topic which we've been talking quite a bit about for the past few weeks. But My favorite I
3: thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I, before we get there, I did want to kind of... So I mean, for our listeners who are listening uh, from the Caribbean, so they've heard, maybe seen on the news, maybe you write one or two articles about some of the events that have taken place in the U.S. or canada um but we're still living in a context where some people from the caribbean are like oh you know like racism like that's not that's not my experience like y'all need to sort yourselves out over there for people who live in in the caribbean like why should they be paying attention to what's going on right now
3: well these structures as they exist uh elsewhere also exist in the caribbean like i you know i grew up in toronto yes but i have heard i mean I have heard some things about the police, okay, in Jamaica. I grew up hearing things about the police in Jamaica. And where do you think that that training comes from? Where does the idea of even policing as an institution come from? It has the same root uh, in Jamaica as it does in the United States, as it does elsewhere. Policing is an institution that was created in France um, to protect wealthy white men's money. And not just money, but their property and they used to think of us as property some of them still do think of us as property Mm -hmm. okay and that is the root of that institution that was the purpose of it and i think that it's failures in keeping us safe today because it doesn't do that it doesn't keep us safe it doesn't keep us secure is because we that that institution built by a you know like a white supremacist colonial structure was built to not to keep us safe. And we tried to transition into making it keep us safe, but it's not, that's never gonna happen. The only people it can uh, keep safe because of the way that it is structured are elites. And so um, why should you care? Because it it impacts you uh, on a local level, but it also impacts you on a global level. Like um, let's think about the way that uh, Canada um, and the U.S. and France have operations, policing operations in the Caribbean, have policing operations in the Caribbean. Like let's think about the ways that uh, when uh, people come to Canada, whether it's uh, you know uh, through the immigration system, through the refugee system, through uh, the temporary foreign workers programs uh, where agricultural workers are working or live live-in caregivers are working, all of those institutions are policed in a particular way. And so that's our family members, Those that's us, right? Like who are moving through spaces in really highly policed places. And they're highly policed often because it's black people who are moving through those institutions in a particular way. And so it is very crucial for us. I mean, like so much of Canada's uh, uh, foreign policing operations are happening in Haiti. Because of the history of Haiti and Canada and France and the US, and the, that colonial um, intervention continues to this day. Um, and so people really, really need to pay attention because if that's something that's happening there, it can happen elsewhere. And also, Canada's always talking about buying up islands in the Caribbean. Y'all know that. <laughs> Canada's always like, we should have another province. Maybe it should be Jamaica or the Turks and Caicos Islands or something. It's like, mm, more colonialism. <laughs>
2: and, and just to add for our listeners who might not be aware, and maybe I think Sandy would know more about this than I do, but a few years ago, the commissioner, I believe, went to Jamaica to understand crime in Toronto. so there's also interesting connections <laughs> yes. about like how people understand crime in Canada, but I'm also reminded of and maybe maybe you all can correct me, but I think the u k prime minister. Maybe mm-hmm. if I think the David, I, I think it was a story about there was one about deportation of like criminals in or designated criminals, I guess, in the UK back to Jamaica, and there was a bit of uproar. But I also think there was a story about uh, there was a desire to create like a super prison in Jamaica or something.
1: Yeah. So
2: he told, when that
1: what happened was. <laughs> <laughs> prison deal Um what it was called back then it was around twenty twenty. And we were mad because okay, we need prisons. In so much that we have a air quotes. He's using air quotes by the way, people <laughs> <laughs> I
3: was like, they can't hear those air <laughs> quotes. In <laughs> so
1: much that we have up we're using a prison system. The ones we have are deplorable. Terrible. So in so much that we're using those, we need a new one because the ones now aren't it like many international organizations have, have condemned some prisons and, and, and lockups that we have. So the, idea, the I guess a part of the idea was you actually need a better prison. We're going to give you one. But the condition was we're giving you prison so that we can deport Jamaicans back here. And that included Jamaicans who never grew up in Jamaica. So really British people with Jamaican heritage that they decided, well, you're actually not British. Go back to Jamaica. And so... There was a lot of discomfort around it because it's like, but why? Why a prison? Why not? Why not focus on education and infrastructure and all of that?
2: Or reparations? Uh, Damn it! Right.
1: <laughs> but even if it was going to be a prison, why not improve the conditions of Jamaicans currently who exist in deplorable conditions within our prison system? And so, yeah, that and then so in all of that, like the reparations, they did. I mean, the conversation was happening while he was here, and Dave Cameron looked at a room full of Black people and said, essentially, we should get over slavery. Yeah, it did not go down well. <laughs> so the deal was dead after that, um, because he was like, you said what now? And it was funny, because around the time, or a little bit after that, I ended up working at the British High Commission. So it was, it was a very interesting conversation for me to have about why it was, one, why it was terrible, um, which everyone accepted, but even the notion of reparations, I remember, strict, I remember distinctly someone saying, "Well, the British people will never give you reparations because the people who benefited from slavery are dead, or it was something of that." So I, I mean, I don't want to misquote, uh, but basically, are the
3: zombies walking around then? Right. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah, so, so they are all dead, and so no one cared. So, so, we, the current British population, they don't know nothing about slavery. Um, they didn't enslave so no, it was the people who owned slaves are dead. Essentially, that's what it was. And it was
2: like, hmm. so, so it was, a lot of that was happening at the same time. Mm. I mean, that's an interesting tie into the point of I, even the protest right now about like statues, even, right? This idea of like, well, they're dead, like, is it really doing any harm to, to anyone? So, why should we make a big hoo-ha about some of this? So, stuff? Let, so let's
1: make a quick inroad into that because I was actually having a conversation on All Angles, um, a TV program here in Jamaica, which is a current affairs program. It was in, in Shepherd and we were talking about removing colonial relics um, because um, you know, the queen is still our head of state, the governor general sits in his office. And so the governor general had a insignia, the order of St. Michael and St. George, and the symbol was a white angel with his feet on the neck of a, what they said was the devil, but it was a dark skinned figure. And so it, it caused up an uproar because people are like, this is essentially George Floyd in an image that it didn't exist and apparently no one noticed it and so we were having that conversation and then someone brought up yeah but you went to the UK on a British scholarship so you know how are you what how are you saying now that you know let's remove these colonial symbols and I think it was and so I think about like the Rhodes Scholarship and the Rhodes Must Fall advocacy that has been happening in Britain I mean I did just simply say is that I just made a piece of reparations that that means that the, the broader conversation about reparations does not need to continue to happen because you're the reason why my education system is inequitable and doesn't serve me. So you can't tell me then that I don't get to get a scholarship just because I'm saying this is your fault and you should fix this. But anyway, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting conversation to have about how we even think about those symbols, even, even if they've been repurposed to quote unquote benefit us.
3: Like, I mean, I feel like that that's a, a big question about, you know, our participation in an unjust system. It's like, but okay, I hear you, but what, this is the system that we were born into. Here I am trying to change it. You know, I'm trying to change it. Like, I still got to wear clothes, even though I recognize that capitalism is stupid. I still got to, uh, you know, be able to communicate with people and thus use a phone, even though I understand that it makes no sense that the cor- the people who are the heads of these corporations are like billionaires. Like that, it, the system is set up so that we cannot escape it, it, the system itself. And I think that it's, you know, kind of trash for somebody to make you feel shitty for uh, benefiting from something that is actually created by uh, the ways that you and your ancestors are uh, exploited especially if, if as part of that benefit you're saying um, this needs to go <laughs> like the, the 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 other pieces that surround this that make this unjust needs to go and so you know one of the statues that was targeted uh, in the the action that we did in Toronto was like Um, The statue of Egerton Ryerson. Now he created, why is there a statue of him? Because he created the compulsory school system. Sounds good, right? People are like, let's revere this man. But no, like the compulsory school system was like the first idea of compulsory school, I think worldwide. And part of it was because he wanted to create a way to stamp out Uh, Indigenous culture from the First Nations people of Canada. So he created a mandatory school system, sure, for the white folks, but also a specific uh, residential school program where, you know, First Nations Indigenous people would be taken from their homes, forced to go to this school, um, banned from speaking their language, and so on a segregated school system for the Black people who were in Canada, too. He was like, oh, these, these people can't go to school with these people. And so wanted to create a separate type of learning <laughs> for Black people. That What he did in Canada was specifically recreated in South Africa. Um, when they were setting up the system of apartheid, they were like, oh, that worked real well over there <laughs> in Canada. Let's bring it down over here. And so does that mean me targeting that statute. Does that mean that I hate compulsory schooling? Do I think that people shouldn't go to school? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that this man should not be revered. That's what I'm saying. You know, like I, there's a way in which sometimes when people want to, people maybe don't agree with the situation, instead of dealing with the complexities of that situation or just admitting my politics are shit and I don't agree with you, um, they try to make things really, really, they try to simplify it um, and put all of this complexity down into one piece and say, well, then if you're going to target uh, Egerton Ryerson then you can't be going to school, like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like uh, These si- situations are complex and we should treat them with the complexity um, that they uh, demand from us. Cause that's the only way that we're going to truly be able to Reshift and recreate systems of justice where we can live with uh, the dignity that we deserve.
0: I think a lot of it is just that we're just not wanting to have that conversation or like the, the discomfort that comes with having those conversations is, I don't know, it cripples us from actually making the change that we want to see. I think the que- the next question that I kind of have is, and this is one that somebody kind of posted to me and I was hesitant in answering. And it wasn't necessarily because I didn't really know the answer or didn't have answers for them. But a part of it, I think I got in my own head about whether or not people would use this as a, as a means of trying to, or as a way of trying to negate or just, I don't know, look down on the movement and it was essentially just what are the pros what are we asking for, right? When we go to protest and so on, what is it that we're asking for? Yes, we're asking for defunding the police, but what else? Is there a list that we can access of the these these asks? And I think a part of the reason I was so hesitant in answering that part is I could already hear people trying to say, and I say trying, um, to say, look, they don't even know what they want. Like, they, they like what, what is it? So if you could just help us answer that question, I think that would be grateful. I'd be grateful at least.
3: There are, I mean, a lot of local organizers have their own like list of demands uh, from the movements, uh, you know, because the thing is, a lot of this movement is very local. But yeah, you're right. That is something that we hear a lot. People being like, well, what do you want? What what system do you want? And I have a lot of answers to that one of them is one Nobody is paying me to do that bureaucratic work. Okay, and when they start to pay me to do that bureaucratic work I'm happy to sit down and figure it out But we pay taxes to people who are supposed to figure it out <laughs> go there figure you. it out I am telling you that this ain't good You are supposed to be the ones who are supposed to figure it out how I'm supposed to do your job to come on I- Come on. Isn't that what we elect people for? Ain't that what they're supposed to do? They're supposed to figure that out. Number two, (laughs) my number two answer. You know, there's a whole host of things that we have in this society that we don't have figured out in our societies that we don't have figured out. And every year, politicians can be like, oh, you know, we're going to try this. We're going to implement this new policy. We're going to reform policing this way. We're going we're gonna to make new com- community policing. We're going to get police in schools. Did they have it all figured out in 1800 and whatever? No, they didn't. They spent hundreds of years perfecting the system of anti-Blackness, OK? So yeah, you're right. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But guess what? We, when, in whatever society we live in, it's a living society where we change and shift things from year to year with every election cycle. If it's if we're talking about elections, or every time we want to get together and say, let's reflect on that, maybe we shouldn't do it that way next time. Why is it only when Black people are saying we want some justice that people are like, come bring it for me, finish, done, and cook on a plate? Like I don't understand. why is it only then they want us to have everything figured out in a way that they never had before we're even allowed to say this is not right no I do not accept that I will not accept that I refuse and finally we got tons of ideas people have been giving ideas to politicians for years most of the time they ignore them or don't try them out and some of the times they have and they haven't worked right but don't tell me that we don't have ideas. It's like, what they do is they look at the list of ideas or the, the list of the policy platforms that we come up with and they're like, well, you haven't thought of this. They go through the whole thing and say, here's this one little piece that you haven't thought of, so take it back, we can't do it. Where And that brings me back to answer number one. You got people to figure that out for you. Just go get them to figure it out, okay? Or hire me, like, I don't care. No, I don't wanna be a pol- uh, bureaucrat. <laughs> don't actually hire me. But if you're gonna ask me those questions, at least get me some money first.
0: Essentially, <laughs> keep that same energy—the same energy that you put into <laughs> this brandy-ass system. I'm gonna need you to use the Terra Power <laughs> exactly
1: But I mean,
2: what I mean to add, add to that—in some ways—the question is kind of insulting. So, if someone's like, oh, "Like, what is it that you want? Like, how about how about like you not kill us for once and then like you know like life is, is that like at too much of a demand? Like, I I, I don't know. But I mean, it, and it's I,
3: almost like—is it not obvious? oh 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 you need me to explain it right (laughs) like
2: (laughs) precisely and i mean and and i think sandy knows this quite well based on the organizing work that she's done but in addition to not paying people for the work people do the work and then the work gets co-opted and then branded as well we came up Mm -hmm. with this idea so we should be celebrated for and not only and then in, a, in addition to it being co-opted, it then gets bastardized. So then the whole spirit of the demands have been lost. And so people have to go back and, okay, we have to start all over again. But to, I mean, I know that Glenn Roy had a question about refunding the police. So I'm gonna let you go.
3: Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Hi. So,
1: because I hear the answers, right? Um, and because in my own work in movements, I understand the legitimacy of the first answer. But then for me, I always wonder, you're right. But if, if we're saying go figure it out, at least ensure that one of the persons that is figuring it out is one of us. Mm. Because yes, we can't, no, absolutely. Who has the messed up system to go and figure it out in our favor, they won't, right? And so, and so I, I prefer the, the other two answers, which is we've been giving you these answers, right? let's focus on that and for me oh you know what and so it brings me to the conversation about defunding the police because like i mean i've i've, I've tried to work through that concept and the challenges i've heard different i guess strains of it and so i am still trying to figure out well i mean which is it is, is it that mainstream media has co-opted defund the police to mean i guess shift their own resources to take the money from the police and put it the kind of services that would actually address the root causes of crime, um, do um, we? but would you still have that police? You'd still have police doing, I guess, limited work, or is it abolishing the system of those um, offices altogether? And if it is that, my question is, and it's, and it's not a question to say don't go with the proposal, it's a question of, it seems, it's, that's, that suggestion seems about decentralizing policing work, or decentralizing law enforcement. And then I wonder if we decentralize law enforcement in that way, how do we then deal with the manifestations of power and bias that inevitably occur within a, within, a, within a decentralized system that may not have uniform standards? Or it may have uniform, stand, uniform standards, I mean, but then if it does, then it goes back. It's a different type of centralization. So, I, so it's what I've been trying to work out what what does it then what could it then look like and how would we deal with what it then looks like because whatever it then looks like would still have power dynamics that we'd have to be um, vigilant of
3: oh yeah and so like i say like these things are living things right like the power dynamics aren't gonna gonna wash away with uh, the shift of one policy or the implementation of a new system like we're going to have to struggle with Um, a system that delivers power in a particular way to any one group of people always, like we're going to have to struggle through it. But you're asking a very important critical question. And so one of the ways I get this question in, in mainstream media is that people will often ask, it's one of the first things that they ask. It's like, do you want the abolishing, when you say defund, do you want to get rid of the police or you just want to reduce the budget? And I think that that is a a question that's really asking something else. And the the something else that it's asking is, are you a reasonable human being or are you super radical? (laughs) Like, I think that that is really, truly the purpose behind the question. And I think that it personally, I think it's an unreasonable question to ask. I think the most reasonable question to ask, if we really want to think about reasonableness, right? Like, is what is it that the police do well? And if there's something that they do well, let's keep it, let's make it good. And whatever they don't do well, let's get rid of it. And I have been asking people, like, what is it that the police do well? Like, I try to shift this, the question around to like, let's let's have a reasonable conversation about that. What is it that the police do well? The things that I always get, um, here's what I hear when when I ask that question. One, well, you know, in cases of sexual assault and rape, um, you know, you can call the police. Say what now? You, you know what I mean? It's <laughs> like the, the only people who would say that and believe it honestly, are people who do not have any sort of connection to, or experience with uh, gender-based violence. <laughs> like, they just don't know. But I come armed with stats. So I'm like, you know, in Canadian society, it's less than 10% of uh, sexual assaults that are even reported to the police. So don't tell me that they're doing that job. In the American society, it's less than 20%. And that is consistent pretty much around the globe because we know that police um, uh, tend to be a hyper-masculine institution that do not um, take uh, seriously uh, the complaints of people uh, who are like, this is an unsafe situation for me. I need assistance with this. So they're not doing that work. And then I'd be like, what else? Tell me something else. If it's not that, then give me something else. And they'll be like, well, you know, burglaries and thefts. I'm like, burglaries and thefts. Okay. Less than 15% of burglaries and thefts are solved in Canada. Less than 16% of burglaries and thefts are solved in America. So what really are they doing? I mean, you watch all of these cop shows on television that make it (laughs) seem like, ooh, they spend all this money and time having uh, Miss Extra Detective go through every single little piece of a case and solving it for the good guys, for the victims. That's not how it works. They don't give them money for that. They're just like, "Here's, here's a limited piece of money that you have. And once it runs out you're done with the case <laughs> okay that's how it is and that less than 15 percent number is less than 15 percent that result in a charge not even solved that result in a charge and a charge uh in some cases isn't a solution it's not a, the solving of the case and i'm like okay so tell me one more give me give me something else they do well sometimes people will say traffic I'm like, but they don't do traffic law. Think about all, it's like one of the number one ways that people um, can get harmed in society is through uh, um, the accidents that happen on the road, right? And oftentimes the way that police engage in traffic is to chase after somebody, thus making even more people unsafe around those people who are now being chased. Uh, We just had a case in Toronto or um, in a suburb of Toronto last week of like um, a traffic violation becoming a high speed ca- uh, chase where somebody who was a bystander died. Mm. I'm like, just somebody tell me what it is that they actually do well so that we can we can we can keep that thing, right? Like for me, it's like maybe it exists. I am willing. I am willing to be convinced that there is something. But when you look at the numbers and when you look at what it is that they actually do, there's not a lot that they're doing well out here, except for making people who never have to interact with them feel like there's somewhere to call just in case their stuff gets threatened. Like literally, that's what it feels like their only purpose is for someone to be like, well, we can call 911 if we ever feel threatened in our mansion. Like, but that's, I don't see anything else.
2: Right. But but even being there available to call is a bit funny because I was scrolling through Twitter this morning and uh, someone was reporting, so this is in Jamaica, they were calling 119 no. and the, did you did you hear? Did you, so basically this person calls, I, I forget what the what the incident was, but they called 119 and the operator was like, oh, you actually need to call like this particular number and they're like, but like you can't, you, you can't deal with or you can't transfer with me. And they're like, no, and then they hung up, and so people oh. were sharing their num- numerous stories of, like, 119 being, like, ever so helpful, and for the North American listeners, in Jamaica, it's 119 just, you all know, But, mm. I mean, Benoit, you had something to say? No, so
1: my, then my other thought is, I, um, as I work through this, is why stop at the police? And that's oh, why-
3: let's not stop at the police, honey. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just cracking open the door. You, you, let, me, let me know when I get to kick it down.
1: <laughs> You <laughs> would have to take on the entire criminal justice system and its utility, from policing to prosecuting to every single one of them, and I'm very right. much very much prepared to have that broader conversation of reworking the system, the system by which we look at criminal law and decide how to respond to criminal law. Whether or not criminal law is how we do it, I think I think that's what it requires, um, in, inevitably. And I'm not saying it has to be all of that for it to be legitimate. No, I would never say that. But as I work through it in my mind, it says, well, we need to, at some point, we're getting to, because I feel like if we do anything else, it's half-stepping, because then it makes it easier to make, to have that response, well, how, how, how are you going to get rid of the police? Because then I think the more radical thing is, let's have a conversation about uprooting the carceral nature of our criminal justice system. Cause, and that's what makes more sense to me when I, when, when I think about the, the, the conversation.
3: Well, yeah, I think that I... I don't really believe in a carceral system generally. <laughs> I think that we do need to look at all of these things. I think that in this moment right now, it's really strategic for us to to uh, take the energy that people have around um, uh, the way that they are being critical of this particular institution, this particular piece of a broader uh, carceral institution, which is the police, um, because I do think yes, it's connected to everything else. And we have to address all of those punitive systems within our society. Absolutely. But I also think that there's a way that uh, we can start here, um, start the shift here. Because I do think like, if we think about the things um, that create crime, quote unquote, in our society, it's like, it's precarity, it's poverty. And if We weren't giving so many millions of dollars to the police forces we could be investing in social housing we could be investing in public health we could um, you know instead of looking at any sort of drug as a criminal issue we look at it as a public health issue and instead of giving money to the police to deal with it give money to a public health system to deal with it instead of only being able to call the police when somebody is having some sort of mental distress moment that we have, we build something new. Let's build something new. Let's build a mental health emergency task force where the people who show up are not going to show up with guns to kill you, are going to show up with expertise to de-escalate a situation and give you the type of health support that you need. Um, I think that that is possible. I think this is going to be a decades-long situation if we're truly trying to change an entire carceral system, and I think it, it it makes sense to start here at this very urgent point because so many of us keep dying um, at this point, the the where the police uh, are interacting with us. But that's not the only place where we're dying.
0: But we ain't ready to have that conversation. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we're having it right now, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking
0: about the you know the the.
3: No, the, the broader, the, the people who are not as enlightened as us here right. on, the, on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs>
0: no, but it, it's important to like, to have that. And I think just to Glenroy's point, it, it, I think the goal is to eventually revamp, build, tear down to the ground, build it back up um, the whole system. But I think for me, the urgency, like Sandy said, is with starting with the police officers. Like they are the ones that we encounter on an everyday basis the the ones that hold so much discretion and it is truly scary um i mean i could like just driving through neighborhoods i am very i find myself policing myself a lot with whenever i'm in in a particular neighborhood um and i used to find myself relaxing when i'm going through black communities now because in my mind i'm like okay these are black cops they'll get it but then even then i'm still very much like you know but just to kind of switch gears and take this episode on down a little bit i'm curious sandy we met sandy the activist and the leader and the the very passionate um individual who is on the front line and i'm grateful for the work that you've been doing but i am curious as somebody who is about to embark on some of this myself how are you taking care of yourself because i I'm imagining that it can't be easy to talk about this over and over and over again. Even if, even if it isn't like direct trauma, there has to be some type of, I don't know, secondhand trauma or something. So how are you taking care of yourself so that you can continue to do this work? And what kind of advice do you have for people looking to become engaged and trying to find their place in this whole movement?
3: That's a good question. I am, One thing that I will say is that if I feel like I don't have some sort of power over um, an injustice that's happening around me or that affects me, that really makes me not do well. And so actually um, doing this kind of activism work is a way that I take care of myself because it makes me feel like I'm taking some power back. You know what I mean? If, If I wasn't able to do anything and I just was like sitting around thinking about it or talking about it with people but not being able to have an effect on it, um, the feeling of powerlessness really fucks with me. So I don't, you know, like I, it is a big part of how I take care of myself is that I have good people around me, good family, you know, like, and making sure that I actively carve out time to spend uh, with those people um, and just to, like, relax and not think about all of the things that I feel like we're constantly forced to think about. Um, sometimes I feel like I just got to keep go, 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 going, because if I stop, like, then, then that's when it'll all fall apart. But that's not a good way to think, you know? Like, it's good to carve out the time uh, for you and your family. Um, I do capoeira, which is a Brazilian martial art. Ooh. So... <laughs> You know, I'm not especially good at it or whatever, but I just, you know, like.
2: That, I've seen it, Sandy. She's like plenty good. She'd be doing all the things on the floor. Not, so, you
3: know. I'm not especially good. But, like, I'm not an acrobat. Okay. Like, but <laughs> it is, it's fun. And it's like, you know, taking care of your body actually is, I think, really important to, you know, uh, I know it's not for everybody, but it really works for me to be able to take some time out to work out and to just have some fun and play around um doing that capoeira and i always am singing at the top of my lungs when there's nobody around so like that's another really big piece of how i take care of myself <laughs> if you uh you know are ever like driving next to me on the highway like my windows are down and i'm screaming <laughs> like singing at the top of my lungs i have people looking at me and i'm like i don't care look you are never going to see me again <laughs> so you know like i i try to take take time out for those joyful moments you know
2: okay speaking of joy so i mean i guess maybe two questions to wrap up i don't know if anyone else has any thoughts but i was thinking about some of the work that you've done and based on my interaction with you some of the work you've done um with the black lives Matter movement but also the black liberation collective um Mm -hmm. but even some of the people that your own um activism and work as a writer is inspired by there seems to be a lot of Caribbean connection or like Caribbean presence in how you in know in how uh, you kind of um, embody and envision your politics and I guess I was wondering I guess this, this might be a runabout way of asking what is maybe what are like two or three things that have shaped who you are in the work that you do that is like you you think is distinctly Caribbean and I mean it could even be in terms of the kind of work ethic even that your that your parents had well you know while while, while you were growing up and then maybe the the last question is a more general question about like what has been bringing you joy generally despite the pandemic um, I know we spoke briefly offline about the the verses saying and maybe I don't know if, that, if, if you, you know, in, enjoyed some of that stuff. But, like, we're, we're having those moments of joy, I guess, would be the second question.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes, distinctly Caribbean vibes within the movement. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I can say for sure <laughs> 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 is, okay, so you know how, like, there's, you know, every, every, like, little piece of the movement has, like, a little different uh, swagger, like, whatever type of chapter you're looking at. Be in toronto always looks a fly have you noticed <laughs> have you noticed that we always we're always thinking about what are we gonna wear like how yeah. are we gonna do our makeup how are we gonna do it are we gonna like try to get some capes on or whatever that's, and let me tell true. you how that i feel like is a very distinctly caribbean thing because we are not leaving our houses honey, not looking good okay like that is something that i think that we specifically Brought to the way that we do this, and I know like some people will be like, "Well, the Panthers always a hot too, sure," but we put a little bit of like a performative flair on it. We really, really did. Even when it came down to Pride, like we were like that. We were like, "All eyes are gonna be on us. Let's. We have to hire a makeup artist for the morning because not a single one of us are going out on that street (laughs) without decked." head to toe (laughs) looking like we are ready to come and party but also fight okay (laughs) we that piece of it it's it literally is every time we do an action it's like you know like the last action we did um we when we were doing the statues it was like we you know, we got ready, we we got a PPE, like the masks were bright pink that we got for everybody, like thinking about how everybody was going to look on screen. And even we got, we got like these new megaphones and Rodney, he's Haitian he's part of our group too Rodney's like these megaphones man like megaphones so ugly he was (laughs) like we're gonna paint them bright pink (laughs) it's like the night before we have work to do okay but he went (laughs) he got some bright pink spray paint to spray down those things so that when people got the pictures like every single piece of how it looks is planned out and I think that that is such a Caribbean thing and there are people in our group who are not from the Caribbean who are like yeah okay like um we could do those things <laughs> and we're like no you don't understand <laughs> like, this is very crucial to how everything is gonna go down that is so caribbean <laughs> okay tell me it's not tell me it's not
2: <laughs> i mean the group always does look information i won't lie
3: <laughs> and then yeah i think the work ethic thing And uh, sorry two two other things both the work ethic and the food. We are Mm. always making sure to feed people. We are always making sure to feed people. It does not matter um, what kind of action that we're doing. We're always thinking, how can we get a bunch of food out here for people today, easy for them to, to, to take and eat with one another. And that's not something you see in every single movement. We're always trying to take care of people's, um, food and their kids actually make sure that we have like a little section aside for the parents who come, um, uh with their kids so that they know that those kids are going to be taken care of in a safe way over here um just in case anything pops off over here you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and so that type of kind of like home kind of home down kind of love like you know like the that way of taking care of each other is i think a very very caribbean aspect of what we do and then yes the work ethic like our ability to just continue going even when you know you you come home from work, you're tired, and it's just like, we're just going to keep going. We're just going to keep going because we don't have a choice right now. This is a moment, this is an opportunity, and we cannot let that go. We're just going to keep it moving because, you know, we watch our parents keep it moving. Like, that is something that has been instilled in so many of us, right? So I think that those three pieces are a really big way that, um, I mean, my work um, definitely is uh, um, created by a very specific kind of Caribbean and Jamaican sensibility (laughs) (laughs) for sure. And the joy, I mean, the verses was dope. I mean, (laughs) watching them old heads kind of like do their little dance, you know, like (laughs) I just, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. It was so, so lovely uh, to watch. Um, Beauty Man and Bounty Killer just you know like I just thought you know and you're watching like the comments go forward to Rihanna's like yeah you know like get the cops out of here or whatever I just <laughs> I loved it I mm. really loved it and you know they took me back and like all those times like at school learning all the dances you know trying to like get all the dances <laughs> down, whatever they were you know and teaching them to one another and so on and it, it was just so fun And, like, actually dancing is a really big way that I find my joy, too, in all of this. And, like, um, that uh, that versus battle really did bring me back to, like, that kind of mid to late 90s early 2000s dance hall scene like that was you know those times it was like you know fucked up in a way for some reasons but also <laughs> a lot of fun like you know there's certain songs we're not bringing back but <laughs> as Roy would say <laughs>
0: as glad would say you can bubble today of course tomorrow
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is it. That is it. You know, I love. You know, I love. I love, 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 dancing, running yeah. out to wine. You know, like just doing. You know, just living free. And uh, those those moments of joy and freedom are so important. oh yeah. that versus was good though. Was <laughs> there like there was no other verses battle that touched that though?
2: No. Really. Like
3: no. really? Like which one touched it? No. <laughs>
2: I mean, are people still watching? Are they still happening?
3: Yeah. I heard there was one last week with Snoop. Oh,
2: no. oh that's Yeah, sad.
3: but I didn't I mean I didn't watch it. I didn't hear much about it. People weren't talking about it like they were when we did it. You know, you guys y'all need to have a conversation about how Jamaicans really exported their culture everywhere. Listen <laughs> in the way that like everywhere it doesn't matter where you go, people be talking about Jamaicans and how fly we are. Like, I wanna hear how that happened. Somebody tell me the history of that. Because... <laughs> It's amazing.
1: We're just brawling. I just uh, left.
2: <laughs> nice,
3: father.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. We're we'll after the scene, I heard. Mm-mm. Not the truth. Listen, my computer is on 2%. So, what we're going to do is wrap this up. <laughs> I just want to say, though, that this conversation surpassed my expectations. Oh. Uh, thank you again for being willing to do this. Um, thank you for you. Aw, thank you. And I mean, I don't I don't know if I mentioned this in your introduction, and again, this isn't like gassing up or blowing smoke up your or anything, but you are a gift to our generation. Anyone who has the honor to know you knows this, they can back me up on this, and hopefully we can have you back at some point again, because this was amazing. Also, listeners, please check out more of Sandy at Sandy and Neurotalk Politics. Check out that podcast. You can... Switch over once you're done here, um, check that out. (laughs) Really good stuff. But yeah, no, thank you. This was really amazing.
3: Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. Y'all are a lot of fun. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for all the
2: insights and conversation,
1: especially Um, on stuff I'm still working through, but you know, it's nice to hear from somebody more closer to it. Absolutely. It is
0: dope that my Jamaican sister is one of the founders of the Black Lives Movement in Right, Black Lives Matter movement in Canada, like, hi, hey, like, guys darling, hello. <laughs> She's doing what
2: she has to do. Oh my god, we haven't even talked about Legendary. This, scientist, this is too long.
0: Um,
1: we're actually not watch it.
2: I was waiting oh. to watch all the episodes. I'm sorry. Oh well, we can wait then. We'll be happy. Okay. <laughs> All right, so this was shit. This thing the thing says one percent. Um, thank you listeners for joining us for this special edition. We'll be back at some point in the next few weeks with season three. three. And as per usual, as Ben Roy always says, stay sophisticated it and will. keep safe. Bye. Bye. Bye.